Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. In Christ's name, amen. John is writing to Christian people as a pastor. And he expresses in the very first verse a desire of his as the pastor of his people, of his flock. And that is, it is his desire that they do not sin. I don't know if you have ever tried to place yourself in the position of a pastor. But let me be personal with you for a little bit as I introduce this subject. And try to relate to you some of the feelings and the concerns of a pastor as he stands before his congregation. A pastor sees his congregation in all kinds of conditions. He sees them at their best, but he also sees them at their worst. Most of the time he sees them at their best because people won't let him see them at their worst. But I've seen many of my congregation at their worst. He sees them when they are full of fears. He sees them when they have doubts. But he also sees them when they have high hopes. He sees them when they are in the valley, but he also sees them when they're on the mountaintop. He sees them when they're weak, but he also sees them when they're strong. He shares with his congregation in many things from birth all the way through to death. And he rejoices in their smiles and their tears of happiness. And he also weeps with them in times of distress and loss. But if there is one feeling that a pastor has that he ought to have, it is to share with his people the very thoughts that John had when he said to them, my little children, one desire I have for you more than anything else, and that is that you don't sin. I have that same desire. I would love to have a church full of people who don't sin. But I'm wise enough to know that like John, I will never have that. For the people that sit before me are no different than myself. We all sin. And we cannot avoid that sin. As hard as we might try, we will indeed sin. We will go astray. A pastor feels loss when his people feel loss. He hurts when they hurt. And sometimes he has hurts because of what they do or do not. A pastor is keenly aware of the lack of attendance of some of his flock in church. And it would be a pastor's desire that every member of his church would always be in attendance at every service. And I can assure you that I look for each one of you at every service. And I inquire when you are absent, when you are normally present. 
as to what might be the problem. There are people absent this morning that I'm concerned about. Some of them I know where they are, and they have reasons for being where they are. Some I don't know why, and it's a concern. But a good pastor sees the good, and he sees the bad, and he, if he is the man he ought to be, strives to be understanding and sympathetic. He does not condemn when he sees things that are not right. He understands, he shares, hopefully he leads, and hopefully he gives proper advice whenever asked. But there comes a point in one's life when he cannot receive from the pastor the counsel that he needs. And that is the point that John brings us to, and it's the point of sin. It is my desire, he said to his congregation, that you do not sin. But if you do sin, he says quickly, you have an advocate. It is not the pastor now that is the advocate. It's Jesus Christ the Lord. There is a point at which the pastor becomes incapable. He cannot go to some places and say some things and intercede in your behalf. I want you to follow, if you will, with me this morning. Because I'm going to try to make this message very personal. I'm going to refer to you as the person that I'm talking about. Put yourself in the word you all morning, will you? You have committed a crime. You're caught. And you're taken to court. You go into that courtroom, handcuffs on. You are dressed in the drab costume of a prisoner. You're not well kept. You're led up before the judge. And you suddenly realize that person, your pastor, your good friend, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, had to stop, to stand back. And you had to walk up before the judge, all alone. Because your pastor, your mother, your brother, is not permitted to intercede in your behalf before the judge. And as you stand there in humiliation, in fear, in distress, and not knowing what your future is going to be, and looking more down at the floor than you are anywhere else because you can't stand the eye contact with the judge, and you are filled with fear of the prosecutor, because you see in him the desire to punish and because of the heinousness of your crime to take your very life. How inferior do you feel? You can't defend yourself. You don't know how. And the judge says to you, do you have a lawyer? You're still looking down at the floor because you can't bear to look up at the judge. 
You say, no, sir. And the judge says, if you cannot afford a lawyer, the court will appoint one for you. And you accept the court's appointment. Some things begin to go through your mind real quick. You wonder about this court-appointed lawyer. Does he know the law? And is he going to take an interest in you, in your personal affairs, in what you did to get you the best possible deal from the court? Now, are you still with me? Let's go to heaven. And now you're not standing before an earthly judge, but you're standing before the mighty judge on the mighty throne of judgment. You can't look at this judge either, but for a different reason, because you can't stand the light that's coming from that throne, from that bar, from the presence of God that's there. And you're consciously aware of the shackles, not just handcuffs now, but shackles of chains that are around your wrists and your ankles. And you realize that you're standing in the presence of purity, in absolute sin, and you reek of it. Your body is covered in absolute filth, and you're suddenly conscious of something you've never been conscious of before. That you cannot possibly stand here and defend yourself in the judgment. And the scripture says, and you remember, that all must stand in the judgment. All must stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account of himself. Why? Because you remember the scripture said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here you stand. How miserable you feel. As your body shakes, the sweat pours off your face and down onto your clothes, and your clothes stick to your body, and the sweat drops to the ground in front of you as you fear this judgment. You glance sideways over at the prosecutor, and you have never seen such an awesome character in all your life standing there at his table. His eyes are like flames of fire that are going to punish you in the depths of hell if he can get the judge to agree. You know he's out for your life. He's out for blood. He has a snarl in his face. He's the most fearsome character you've ever seen in your life, which makes you shake even more. Somehow you know his name is Satan. And that mighty judge on that bench there asks you the same question that you heard down on earth in your trial there. And he says to you, do you have a lawyer to represent you? You can hardly answer. Weakly you squeak out, no. And the judge says, the court will appoint you a lawyer, an advocate to represent you. Your head is bowed. 
But somehow it seems like the lawyer that steps forth comes right out of the very person that sits on the bench. And he steps down to your side and you're looking down at the floor again. And the first thing you see is the feet of this person who has come off the judgment seat. And he has on sandals. But that's not what draws your attention. It's those big gaping wounds in his feet. It looks like someone has driven huge spikes into them. Your eyes come up just a little. He's reaching out to you. And you're taken aback by the fact that you see the same kind of wounds, cold and torn and bleeding in his hands. You discover that he has on a white robe, purely white. But there's one problem. It's bloodstained. Particularly you see it just above the waistline. Blood apparently oozing from his side and staining that white garment that he has on. It's not dried blood. It's still running. And then you realize that it's running for you. And finally, your eyes look at his head. No, it doesn't have on a golden crown. He still has on a crown of thorns that someone had pulled down over that forehead and around his and it was bleeding. But the thing about his face that catches your attention is his eyes. They're so kind. They sparkle. They appear to be looking right through you. As if he understands and knows all of the things about you. And his voice gives you such assurance. And you begin to feel at ease. And now your voice has some control to it. And you finally say to him, I'm sorry. But I didn't understand your name. And he says, my name is Jesus. I am the son of the judge. And he explains to you that he is the only lawyer that the judge will allow practice in that court as an advocate. My lawyer, you say. You feel a hand on your left shoulder you weren't conscious of anybody until now. And you turn slightly and there stands a man that somehow you know is Paul. And Paul simply says with a smile on his face, be of good cheer. Something on the other shoulder. And you look. Peter. The one who denied the Lord three times in one night who had done worse than you perhaps had ever done. And he says, have faith. And then a beautiful lady with 
with a face like an angel, steps forward and stands in front of you. And she says, my name is Mary Magdalene. I love your lawyer. You love him too. As any lawyer will do, he says to you, with what are you charged? And you have to tell him. And you say, I am charged with sin. What's the penalty? He said, I'm forced to tell you the penalty of sin is death. He says, are you guilty? Every lawyer asks his client that question. Are you guilty of the crime with which you charged? You have to admit it. Yes, I did it. I did it all. And you realize that he's really taking an interest in your case. And you start pouring out your heart. And it pours out and pours out and pours out with the tears streaming down your face as you confess to him every sin that you've committed. And fall on his mercy and say, can you help me? Can you help me? He says, I understand your situation. Well, how can he understand my situation? And then you remember. You remember what the writer to Hebrews said in 4.15. For we have, an high, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. For in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Aren't you glad that you were taught that when you were in church in Sunday school? You have an advocate who was tempted in every case just as you have been tempted, but he succeeded in going through it without sin. And he reminds you of his wilderness experience. Yes, he understands. Trial time. The lawyers go through all of the things that are necessary in pleading the cases, and you've heard the prosecutor. He has laid out before the judge everything you have ever done, thought, or said that was evil and wrong and contrary to the perfect will of God. And you shrink, and you know there is no way that you're going to escape the judgment of that mighty judge because everything that prosecutor has said has been right to the nth degree. And as you stand there and sit there at the, at the table in fear, knowing that the sentence is about to be passed and the final arguments are now being given, your lawyer turns to you to, and says, do you believe in me? 
And weakly you say yes. And he says, trust me. Trust me. And you say, I have to. I have no other recourse. I put my life, my very soul in your hands. If I get out of this, it's because of what you do. Not because of what I've done. For I deserve it all. He says, trust me. And your lawyer stands before that judge and gives the most eloquent speech that you've ever heard. But the thing that was impressive to the judge was when he pulled back that robe and revealed that gaping wound in his sides. When he showed the judge those wounds in the feet and in the hands that you had observed. And he says to the judge, Your Honor, I have already paid the full price for the penalty of this man's sin. And here's the evidence. You remember a little verse of scripture that said, For the righteous some would scarce to die, would even dare to die. But for the unrighteous, who would ever do that? And you know you stand there as the unrighteous ready for the sentences to be passed. And this lawyer of yours steps forward and said, I died for this man. I paid his penalty. You don't know what's happening, but something is happening. Those shackles that have bound your feet and legs Leave. Disappear. The odor that you've had with the filthiness of sin that you stand there reeking of all of the filth of the world, the vileness of it, is somehow gone. And you have on a white robe just like your lawyer. And the judge speaks. And he says, you've been acquitted. You've been redeemed. You have been redeemed by the blood of my own son that represented you today. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Not by what you did, but by what your advocate did. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.